Well, good morning, everyone. It's really good to see you. For those of you who are regular attendees, we want to welcome you. And for those of you who are joining us for the first time, we also want to give you a warm welcome. Um, we also want to acknowledge the, viewer, the viewers who are joining us online. We're so glad that you can join us each Saturday for our, uh, for our live stream, and um, we're glad that you can join us. So as you know, today we are finishing our series on six different ways of sharing your faith. Six different ways of sharing your faith. And um, as I mentioned in part two, rather than it being part two, it was more like attempt number two. And there are times where you just have to try again. And uh, there's one part in here that's going to sound a little bit familiar, but I just I need to revisit it just because um, it wasn't clear the first time. So we're in this final talk on the series entitled Six Different Ways of Sharing Your Faith. Um, we, we live in a different time where sharing our faith is not the same as it once used to be. Uh, back in 2005, when I first came to Melbourne, um, I would kind of go through the streets of Melbourne, chatting with people and having conversations with people about Jesus. And I had a clipboard in front of me and uh, a piece of paper with questions, and I would engage people in conversation. And at the end of the conversation, I would invite them to a Bible study. Now, you can imagine what it's like for someone to roam the streets of Melbourne pestering people for Bible studies. You can imagine how that went down. And uh, each time I walk through the streets and I see the, um, you know, the, like the charitable foundations where people stand on like the corner of the streets and they try to catch you as you're walking by, I very much feel for those individuals, but also I tend to think they're doing it wrong. They're doing it wrong. See, like, it, it's better if you go during lunchtime to the parks where people are sitting down, and instead of catching people while they're walking around, you've got to go sit next to them while they're sitting down. Because what happens is people feel, well, they feel rude if they tell you to scram or if they stand up and walk away. And so you have a captive audience. And so anyway, each time I see those people who are raising funds for the charities, I think, you know, you should just you should go to the parks. You'll have better success. Anyway, what happened for about 18 months in 2005 was I would go to the parks and generally I would talk with international students. And you would wonder who in their right mind is going to give a stranger the time of day and say, yeah, I'll study the Bible with you. And after a series of Bible studies, say, yeah, okay, I'll join your church. And then after a longer period of time, say, yeah, okay, I'll get baptized. Well, it, it, it worked. There were moments where people would come to church, they would engage in Bible study, and um, we were able to connect with different people in the community. It was very difficult. It was very abrasive. It was very challenging. But there were results. Well, when Jinha and I first came back in 2012, I worked with a pastor who wanted to do the exact same thing. And my feedback was, this is really, really abrasive. I think we should try a different approach. But he was like, we're doing it. And so I was like, all right, well, you're my supervisor, so I'm going to go with you. And it was just, it was hard yards. And so now you can tell Jinha and I, we don't spend any time on the streets with clipboards talking to people because times have changed and how we share our faith um, needs to change as well. So similar to last time, we're going to be talking about different ways or different um, ways in which God reveals himself to different contexts to different people. If we can understand God's revelation, we can then build principles around how we can share that revelation with others. So we explored three different models last time. They are, the first one was a countercultural model, which offers a radically different worldview through the Bible, which produces significant results in the life of the practitioner. I realize I'm fiddling with this a lot. I'm just going to pull it off.
The second model that we looked at was the translational model, which steps away from the all-or-nothing approach to God. It hones in on the central, relevant truths of Scripture, giving flexibility to the practitioner. The third model that we looked at is the praxis model, which starts with action and focuses on living out truth. And it's from this model that we get liberation theology, which is where the church gets a lot of its mercy ministry, care for the less fortunate, um, along with social justice ministries. Now, if these terms are unfamiliar, feel free to watch part two of this series on the Melbourne City Adventist Church YouTube channel. It's six ways to share your faith, part two. So today, as we go through the three remaining models of the ways in which God reveals himself, some of these models, they're going to challenge your thinking. It's okay to disagree with these models. You don't have to um, accept them. Um, If they don't sit well with you, that's okay. The purpose of this series is to explore different ways in which God shows himself to humanity. Like I said before, we live in a different time uh, when the way we share our faith has to change because the world is different. So this series explores different approaches and mindsets in in how we can share um, the faith that we have. If something challenges you today, I encourage you to prayerfully review and explore the Bible passages that I'll be sharing with you. I hope that at the end of this series, you can appreciate God's creativity and his desire to reach everyone. So we're going to start with a model called the Transcendental Model. And this model supposes that objective knowledge can only be achieved by attaining authentic subjectivity. So one more time, the model supposes that objective knowledge can only be achieved by attaining authentic subjectivity. So being genuine about one seeking is key to encountering God. So here's a scriptural example in John chapter 14, verse 21. The Bible reads, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. So Jesus makes this incredible promise that he will reveal himself. Now I'm curious, how many of you have ever seen Jesus before? Have you ever wondered, what does he look like? And here in this, bio, or here in this text, Jesus promises, I'll show myself to you. But there are conditions that are placed upon this promise. It says an awareness of God's presence is developed when someone first loves God, and keeps his word or keeps his commandments. So this this promise raises a question that begs to be answered. Is it possible to love and commit to God before knowing him? Is it possible to love and commit yourself to God before you know him? There's an example in life that makes this concept quite relevant. It's the concept of love the concept of love. If I'm honest, I fell in love with Jinha before I really knew her. See, we had gone to the same school, we had gone to the same church for two years before we started dating. And the day I asked Jinha to be my girlfriend, I thought, man, this, this woman, she is, she is perfect. She's just everything that could, I could possibly ask for in a partner. So I planned out this elaborate date, which at the end, I pulled out my guitar, and I serenaded her with a song, professing my love to her. 
And as I got to the second verse, I was so nervous, I forgot the lyrics, and I had to start over. Uh, thankfully, the song came to an end, and then I asked Jinha out. Now, for a few months, everything was amazing. And then, after the few months period was over, we started arguing and having disagreements. Then those arguments got more severe, there was yelling, there were tears, and I wondered, who is this woman, and why are relationships so difficult? It takes a commitment to love to get through all the challenges that arise in a relationship to actually arrive at love. And before I continue on, it's worth it to note that there are some relationships that you should just get out of. Having said that, love cannot be objectively discovered without subjective commitment. If you want to know if someone loves you, you have to wholeheartedly give yourself to that person. If you constantly communicate to that person, prove to me your love. How on earth can that person ever feel the security to make that love genuine? The love that is given is motivated by fear. There's no trust. There's only uncertainty. So the reality that someone loves you can only be realized as you give yourself completely to that person. You have to allow yourself to be hurt, to know, yep, I can trust this person. So it is with God, where we first learn to be consistently vulnerable and genuine in our seeking, then God reveals himself. And as we grow in our understanding and experience with God, the genuineness of our faith becomes apparent, and others become aware of our faith, because it genuinely belongs to us, and our uniqueness becomes apparent. With the... uh, With the transcendental model, there isn't a need to preach a sermon because your life is a sermon. This is perhaps one of the most important ways to share your faith. Here's the second model, the anthropological model. Now, I shared shared about this model the first time I tried this sermon. I apologize. I'm just going to try it again. The anthropological model is about sharing the gospel in a way that doesn't require the individual to give up their individuality, their culture, or identity for the sake of the gospel. It states that God is willing to prioritize the person, their needs, and their desires. And from the interaction and revelation of the goodness of God, something new arises. Now, in 1990, the World Council of Churches Commission on World Mission and Evangelism. That group has way too long of a name. But anyway, this group stated, we are called to study the strange and sometimes offensive voices in various cultural milieus, not only for the purpose of combating or converting them, but also to learn from them and to deepen our insights and understanding of the gospel. So here's a scriptural example. In John chapter 1, verse 4 and 9, it says, In the beginning was the Word, which is a reference to Christ, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. So this text says that God's truth is everywhere in everyone. It exists outside of Scripture and the traditions that come from Scripture. Here's another scriptural example, the example of Abraham and his family. 
There are three major world religions that find their roots in this biblical character. Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. These three are considered Abrahamic religions. Here's how they started. So in Genesis chapter 17, verses 6 to 8, God gives this promise to Abraham, and I'm going to summarize this for the sake of time. God comes to Abraham and he basically says, I'm going to bless you. You're going to have many children and many descendants, and that promise gets passed on to all of your progeny. You're, all of your descendants are going to become an incredible nation, and I will be their God. So God gives this incredible promise, and if you familiarize yourself with the story, you find that Abraham had children through multiple wives. And so the question is, how does this promise get applied through the different wives and the different children that he has? Well, one of these wives was a woman named Hagar, an Egyptian servant, who gave birth to a son named Ishmael. The story goes that Abraham's first wife, Sarah, she does not like Hagar and Ishmael and tells Abraham, send these two away. See, Harris, uh, Sarah sees Hagar and Ishmael as a threat to her and her own son. As they grow up, she thinks the two boys are going to grow up. There's going to be competition. Ishmael's older than my son. I want him out. Well, the story goes on in Genesis 21, verses 11 uh, to 13, that Abraham really didn't like this idea. But then in verse 12, it says, God said to him, don't be so distressed about the boy and your slave woman. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, because it's through Isaac, which is him and Sarah's son, that your offspring will be reckoned. I will make this son of the slave into a nation also, because he is your offspring. So here, God extends that promise, not only to Isaac, but to Ishmael as well. And so Abraham ends up sending Hagar and Ishmael away with some food and water. Um, and the story goes, they run out of both, and Ishmael is about to die of hunger and thirst. Well, if you're Ishmael's mother, she would be wondering, what happened to this promise that you're going to bless this son of mine who is about to die? Well, the Bible says that God hears Ishmael crying and the angel of God calls out to Hagar from heaven and says, What's the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up. Take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. And the story continues on. The boy receives sustenance, and then later on he marries a woman from Egypt. So here in this story is the beginning of Islam. Now, I realize as I continue on in my sharing, I sound like I'm saying Islam has a truth. And I want to be very clear of what I'm saying. I'm saying God is so good that when he promised Abraham that he would bless his whole family, he stayed true. God stayed true to his promise by preserving Ishmael and Hagar by blessing them. See, God didn't force Ishmael and Hagar to believe and act in the ways of Abraham and Isaac or his own ways. He allowed them to explore truth in a way that was consistent with who they were. And here's why this is meaningful. The anthropological model reminds us that God prioritizes people. See, the countercultural, the translational, and the praxis model, it prioritizes God's will and his word. And if you're joining us for the first time, like I said, um, if, these, if these models don't make sense, you can check out part two on the YouTube channel. 
So with each of these three models that have been stated, there's a degree of submission that is required in order for the seeker to discover and encounter God when using the countercultural translation or, pra- or praxis model. But here, God reveals himself and his goodness and his goodwill towards people while preserving their individuality, their culture, and their desires. You know, often in our witness, we try to get people to change to our cause, to our church, to our way of thinking. But there are moments when God can reach people where they're at. In Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, there's a passage here. If you look at verse 14, the author of Romans says that Gentiles, the unbelievers, they don't have a law. They don't believe in the Ten Commandments. They don't even believe in God. If you look at verse 15, but if they show that they have acted in a manner that is consistent with their conscience, in other words, they do the best they can with what they know, in judgment, God accepts that. That is a huge truth bomb where God is saying, hey, I'm looking at your heart because not everybody is born in a Christian environment. Not everybody has the opportunity to hear about Jesus. So then how does God judge those individuals? And God says, I look at your heart. Now, I recognize that the Bible saying you don't have to believe in God in order to go to heaven sounds so different from what we normally preach. Now, do I want everyone to become Seventh-day Adventists? Of course. But I might not be able to convince some people to join my denomination. And my point here is, I may not be able to influence every person to join my church. But maybe I can influence every person to respond to the Spirit of God. And I'm not sure if you can catch that nuance. We have these close friends who have visited our church on a number of occasions. They're not Christians. They don't own any cars because they don't want to leave the small because they want to leave the smallest carbon footprint possible. They ride their bikes or public transportation almost everywhere they go. They have the money to buy a car. It's not like they don't have the resources. The wife is a scientist working in nanotechnology. The husband is a manager at CSIRO. They are anti-consumerism, and there's one phone in the family. It does not get replaced until work gives them a new phone. They are the holiest non-Christians I have ever met, except for maybe Andy, and he became a Christian, so that doesn't really count anymore, and Andy's not here. So anyway, you guys will meet Andy if you don't know who Andy is. Whenever our families get together, it feels like community, even though our practices are so different but our values are aligned. Now, I would not be surprised at all if God considered them his own. Now, I realize that after sharing Romans chapter 2, where the Bible says, you don't have to believe to be saved, and a response to that might be, great, so then why should I be a Christian? Why believe at all? If you continue reading through Romans and you get to Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the author of Romans answers that question by saying, there is every advantage to the believer In that, the believers have the truth. The believers have the truth. Now, I recognize that this model is not the ideal. We want conversion. We want to see belief in Christ. We want to see people accept our truth because there's value in it. And this, But this approach is so useful in that when you know the person will not join your church, 
you can still influence them to become a child of God because God is not insecure. He'll touch someone's heart even if they never take on the name of Christ. That's how good God is. So then in our approach to other world religions or other worldviews, we can still show them goodness. And oftentimes, we can share parts of our faith that resonate with their own identity. And as they interact with that bit of truth, God can then do something new. See, our inability to convert people to our truth shouldn't stop us from being missional. Here's the third and final model. It's a synthetic model. Now, similar to the anthropological model, this is the synthetic model. And as the name states, there's a synthesis or blending of two different components or elements. The synthetic approach states that God steps into the worldview of others and engages in dialogue within that worldview of the individual. The continual dialogue results in a revelation of truth. So here's a scriptural example. There's this famous story in the book of Matthew where Jesus walks on water. And in the story, one of Jesus' disciples by the name of Peter asks Jesus if he can also walk on water. Now this story is often communicated as an act of faith for Peter, but this is not the case. The story goes that Jesus sends his disciples on a boat across the lake. And while he goes away to pray, in the evening a storm hits and the disciples struggle to navigate the boat through the storm. So Jesus then walks on the water towards the disciples. Now as you read through the story, you'll find um, that in verse 26, the disciples think that Jesus is a ghost. So then he has to calm them down because the disciples are losing it. They're, They're afraid in the boat. Now, if the disciples see this figure walking on the water and they're scared out of their minds and they're saying, oh no, it's a ghost, it's a ghost, there's a very easy way for Jesus to fix this problem. Just hop into the boat and be like, hey guys, it's me. Problem solved. But the story takes this weird turn. Peter makes a proposition to Jesus. He says, Jesus... If you can get me to perform a miracle, I'll believe in you. Now, there's one other example in the book of Matthew where Jesus' identity gets tested with similar words. This is the story of the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. So Satan says, Jesus, if it's you, then turn these stones into bread, and I'll know that you're the Son of God. See, Peter's tests follows this formula very similarly. Peter wants Jesus to give him the power to perform a miracle and to look good in front of his friends. See, Peter sees his relationship with Jesus as a means of obtaining power. He doesn't ask for Jesus to allow any of his friends to receive this power. He wants it for himself. This request is not an act of faith. So how does Jesus respond? I would think that Jesus would say, don't be ridiculous. I'm coming to you. But instead he says, okay, Peter, step out of the boat and come towards me. So Jesus steps into Peter's worldview and allows Peter to determine how God is to interact with himself as proof of his identity. 
but also his divinity. So Jesus puts himself into the scenario that Peter creates so that Peter can discover faith. Not because it's right, but because God is merciful. So in the story, Peter starts walking on the water, then he gets scared and sinks into the water, and the implication here is that Peter loses faith. And the story ends by Jesus rescuing Peter and pulling him back in the boat. Here are the final verses in the, cha- in the chapter. It says, And when they, Jesus and Peter, climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So how do we apply the synthetic concept into our lives? See, in a conversation with someone who does not accept the biblical worldview, witnessing means stepping into that person's worldview and engaging in dialogue within that worldview with hopes that the result is a revelation of truth. So I'm going to pick a real-life example that's very controversial. Controversial cosmological evolution. So many people don't believe in God because people feel like science is so contrary to what the Bible says about creation. And here's my question. Is it possible to blend both ideas? Should we blend both ideas? Now I need to start once I need to give a disclaimer before I get into this. I want to say I believe that God created the universe with his word. I believe in a creator. You know, when you look at the Latin of universe, it's a single spoken sentence. Like, it's a universe. You can't really separate the idea of God from existence. Now that I've said that, did you know that the father of the Big Bang Theory was an ordained priest? The guy who is credited with the idea of the origin of the universe exploding from a Big Bang was a devout believer in God. How crazy is that? Georges Limatre, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name right. Let's see if I can get this. Oh, what happened? Oh, it's on blackout. That guy in the middle that looks like a priest, that's him. And if you look at the guy standing to his right, Albert Einstein. In 1923, Georges Limatre was ordained as a priest. That year, he also became a research associate at Cambridge. He was exposed to modern cosmology, stellar astronomy, and numerical analysis. Later, he would complete his doctorate at MIT. He was nominated in 1954 for a Nobel Peace Prize in physics for his theory of an expanding universe. Now, how many atheists do you think know that the guy that popularized the reason for unbelief was a believer of God. How many of us know that? You know, when I found this out, I was like, what? I'm not sure how this information sits with you. But what's compelling for me is that there are people who might explore God, the idea of a God, and even believe themselves if they knew it was possible to believe in God and science at the same time. Would it change the way that you witness and engage with people if someone said, I don't believe in God because of science? What if instead of arguing about creation, the creation of the universe, you said, did you know that Georges Limatre, the father of the Big Bang Theory, believed in God? How would that change the dialogue that took place? Do I subscribe to the Big Bang Theory? No. 
But if someone else were to explore God because they didn't have to give up that idea, would I want them to move forward in their journey with God? Absolutely. Georges Limatre writes, God is hidden in and operates through the physical laws of the cosmos. See, for him, he didn't mind bringing the two passions of his life together. There are moments when God is willing to work within the confines of humanity's own making because he wants to reveal himself. I hope that as we've explored six different ways to share your faith, your understanding of just how far God is willing to go to reveal himself has expanded. I hope you found at least one method or one model in which you can then be a witness to those around you. You know, we live in a time where people are not going to just say, oh, you believe in a six-day literal creation? Me too. You believe in the Sabbath? How wonderful. I'll join you. Sometimes, rarely, that happens. Most of the time, people have huge barriers to faith. So then how do we then introduce God to this world? And when you look at scripture, you see the complexity of how God has to interact with humanity. And so I hope once again, as these concepts are very challenging, I totally get that. I encourage you, go back, read through scripture and ask God, how are you showing yourself? How have you showed yourself to humanity? especially those who are born unbelievers. And as you think through this, may you experience the joy of being able to watch people respond to the Spirit of God because God wants to reveal himself. May God bless you. Would you join me from prayer? Father God, as we read through your word, we see that you have this strong desire to connect with humanity because we need you. We need your truth. We need your love. We need your presence. We need your guidance. And as we study scripture, as we consider how you package your truth, that you would give us wisdom as we reach out to our friends, our family, and our loved ones. We pray these things in your name. Amen.